Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Blum, who is the author of How the Tea Party Captured the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics. This was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020, and it is a fascinating analysis of the Tea Party. If you ever had any questions about where the Tea Party got started, how it got started, and what it's been up to over the last 15 years, this is the book for you. Um, but I'm going to let Rachel tell us a little bit about that as well as welcome her to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hello, Rachel. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and I'm happy to talk about the book. Uh, so the the story of how I came to the project is is a long story. Um, it goes back to when I was very small, four or five, and I will truncate that for you all. But I grew up in a family that uh, really bought into the Christian right, to the homeschooling movement, to evangelical fundamentalism. And they became increasingly uh, into that as I grew older and pushed me into conservative politics and two campaigns, um, sent me to a conservative college, uh, a Christian college in Virginia called Patrick Henry College that really wanted its students to become, uh, they called it God's army, uh, basically Republican foot soldiers. Uh, we were made to work on Republican campaigns and so forth. It was just part of the process. So I've I've been in that world for a lot of my life, uh, but I left that world when I when I went to grad school at Georgetown, which is eventually where this project starts. Um, while I was there, I I got to to meet other types of people. I got to experience academic freedom um, and explore other ideas. But a couple years in, I needed a project for a class and. The only thing I could think of that was interesting to me was a, a paper we'd read about the Tea Party. And this would have been 2011 or 12, early on. And I just, I forget who wrote the paper. It was, it was some sort of working paper, but I just thought it got the whole thing wrong. And that was based on the people I knew who were part of the Tea Party or were sympathetic to it. So... I ended up finding some tea partiers um, with the help of, of Clyde Wilcox, who was one of my advisors there. Um, I was able to get permission from a local leader in Southern Virginia to go down there and interview tea partiers. So the the very beginnings of, of the book were a, a long day of, of interviews. I did probably 20 in one day all of them in rural areas surrounding Richmond, Virginia. And I learned, I learned a lot there. <laughs> what I learned ended up being so perplexing that I 
was driven to write a dissertation about it and then to to later on write a book about it. Um, I had gone into this ex expecting kind of a narrative of loss. You know, we had this perfect America in the days of Ronald Reagan and now it has fallen apart. That's what I thought they would say. And a few of them did. They were, as we all know now, knew then, very anti-Obama, and there were a lot of racialized elements to their opposition to Obama. But more than that, at least in the interviews I did, they talked about how much they hated the Republican Party, and that made no sense to me. So as part of the Christian right, when I was younger, or you know, growing up in that universe, I had been raised to think that the Republican Party was the friend, right? It was the vehicle through which all good and godly things happened in politics. This was a new approach from a movement on the right to its party, an approach that, you know, now with hindsight, I can say we hadn't seen since uh, Barry Goldwater's uh, ill-fated presidential run in 1964. So all of that together created this um, this interest in, in explaining the Tea Party and how they were different than the movement that had immediately preceded them, the Christian right, how they gained power and what this meant for the U.S. party system as we know it or thought we knew it. And in terms of the the Tea Party itself, you, you spend a lot of time, particularly early on in the book, talking about this concept that we have. Madison talks to us about this, and I like annoy my students by spending a lot of time on it in Federalist 10, famously the factions. Um, and you talk about how the Tea Party fits into sort of some definitions of factions, but not kind of other definitions of factions in terms of how it was operating and continues to some degree to operate inside the Republican Party. Can you explain a little bit about how you're thinking about this concept of factions within the American system and where the Tea Party sits in that? Yeah. So factions, um, that is really down my research focus, and, and that happened because of this book. I ended up looking at factions because the default way to refer to the Tea Party at the time was as a movement or a social movement. And there were certainly aspects of the Tea Party that were correctly identified by movement scholars as movement aspects. But as it matured, I'm thinking post-2013, um, when Mitt Romney had, again, lost a presidential election and the Tea Party felt emboldened to push against the party much harder um, and felt like they had more of a case to make about how running moderates wasn't the way to go. By the time they entered that, that phase, post-2012, um, they started to act not like a movement, but like kind of like a party, kind of like a party inside of a party, which is a, a very long-winded way to say a faction um, is what I ended up arriving at. It was difficult, though, because since Federalist 10, 
factions haven't really been a topic. I mean, there are some notable exceptions. Um, Austin Ranney's work, David Mayhew has a little bit um, about factions in his book on traditional party organizations. And there's a kind of small and growing field in American political development, uh, Daniel DeSalvo, Ruth Block Rubin, and then more recently, Andrew Clark. So people are working on it now around the same time as me probably for the same reason. Um, but there wasn't a lot to go off of. So I kept returning to Federalist 10. And then that led me to David Hume, who whose views on parties and factions and, and fractiousness uh, were the underpinnings of, of Federalist 10. And the basic idea that, that I pulled out of all of this is that a faction is a group that is very intent on gaining power and they have some sort of particular interest and they're probably willing to do some unusual things or play hardball to get there. That could sound a little bit like the idea of political insiders that, that's, or, or sorry, political outsiders and purists. That's one way we might look at it in political science. But in, theoretically, in terms of the Republican Party and the Tea Party, I wanted to explain the Tea Party with a framework that would let us talk about other factions as well. So I ended up, to, to back up from all of this, talking about factions as miniature coalitions, miniature parties within parties. So as such, they mirrored a lot of the aspects of political parties which you know are again not a simple thing to define but in the contemporary american context there's been an increasing consensus that political parties are coalitions they're made up of all kinds of people groups elected officials activists who want things and who want to win office to get those things but what happens if you are part of a party and you just never get your way. Like you, you compromise every time, but your issues are never, ever the ones on the table. What do you do? So you can think of this as exit voice loyalty if you want to. You can leave your party and join the other party, which for the folks who make up the Tea Party was not an option. You can get really loud, um, maybe get together with other people who've been a little bit left out copy your party, infiltrate its organizations, primary its candidates, until eventually your voice is so loud that you become the party. Or you can just be loyal, you know, business as usual, your day will come around. The Tea Party and the type of factions that I talk a lot about in the book, I call them insurgent factions, they use that middle option, the voice option. Um, by mimicking the structure and the tools and the machinery of their host party, these sub-coalitions are able to have outsized influence on electoral um, contests, on the types of candidates who are put forward in those contests. And when this happens time and time again, in every venue from local school boards all the way up to who's the speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, um, there ends up being a, a strong impact on that party. So to tie this back to Federalist 10, 
what we see with insurgent factions like the Tea Party is a group of citizens, in this case, a minority of the whole, who have an interest that's opposed to what's good for the rest of the country, maybe even what's good for the rest of their party. But they have found a way to solve this communication problem or the collaboration problem that that Madison thought would prevent a faction from gaining power. And that right there is, I think, the crux of why this matters so much right now. And 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 so drawing on that, that is, you know, again, what he sort of talks about is that the factions will be diluted. Um, and if it's a minority faction, it's not necessarily going to be able to become the majority for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and yet... <laughs> Yes. Um, I mean, and, and we've obviously seen this before because we saw it in in the 1850s um, with the rise of the Republican Party, um, exactly. which was another faction. Um, and, and so how in this particular contemporary example in your research, what is it that the the Tea Party was able to do inside the Republican Party that essentially has made it now more or less um, captured to the Tea Party. Well, the Tea Party, like a lot of movements and factions on the right, knew its territory. And this is, I mean, we could spend the whole podcast talking about the the history of, of movements and factions on the right and the left. But just as a brief synopsis, um, movements and factions on the left tend to be suspicious of parties and the party establishment. So some of them attach or anchor or help direct um, parties later on, but in general, they are just more comfortable operating outside of the party space. On the right, though, we see something a little different. And we could go back a long ways, but... I just want to take us back to the 60s, which is really when the parties realign, to 1964, when Barry Goldwater, again, who was not very popular, won the Republican nomination because he had a cadre of very motivated supporters who knew the inner workings of their party. This is exactly how the Tea Party operates, right? You have people who have been Republican activists. They have been at local party meetings, they have been knocking doors for candidates for a long time. They have the resources, the experience to do this, and they know how it works. So it's very natural for them, if they if they want power and they can organize, to take over that system. So we could call it the party as organization. So the Tea Party's essential strategy and you know, this differs a little bit by area and electoral laws, was to try to get people in office um, so they could try to take their country back, whatever that happened to mean or not mean. In most places, the best way to do that was to influence candidate selection, which occurs typically in a primary. So if you want to change your area's representative of Congress to for example, we can think of um, Eric Cantor, who was the House Majority Leader for a while from Virginia's 7th Congressional District. If you had lived there in 2014 and you thought, this man is not a true Republican, I want to replace him with a Tea Partier, you could do one of two things. 
Um, once you identify your candidate, in this case, David Bratt was the candidate, um, you could try to put him forward by contesting Eric Cantor in the primary. Primaries are a good place to do this because they're low turnout elections. And if you have a lot of motivated people knocking on doors, an unpopular person can prevail. So in that situation, we know that David Bratt won the primary um, and then it was a safe seat, goes on to win the general election. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to become the party. If you take over the local party organization, then you can essentially determine who the party's candidate is, who gets to go forward in those elections. So at the state and local level, this was the strategy, um, again, with some variations. Um, different, different strategies were deployed for conventions and, and that kind of thing. But this is, this is how a faction like the Tea Party could gain so much leverage despite not being a numerical majority. And I would say if we're, if we're looking at what's going on right now or in the future, we continue to see this kind of behavior from extreme Republicans. Um, at some point, if it's interesting during this podcast, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about what's happening here in Oklahoma with these kind of warring factions in the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be happy to ask you to do that because part of what you're teasing out in the book is the particularities of state laws, how you get on the ballot, um, or, or there's some states that are uh, are easier to get on the ballot. I lived in Minnesota. Minnesota's got the one of the lowest thresholds to get on the ballot in a lot of different ways, um, whereas other states, as you note in the book, are much more difficult, so you have to figure out a different way in um, and, and so can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Oklahoma and how that demonstrates what you're studying? Yeah. So Oklahoma is interesting because it's essentially a one party state. I, I mean, Democrats live here, but Republicans typically control the governor's mansion, the state house, the state Senate, um, and the entire congressional delegation. So, if there's something interesting going on here, it's typically within the Republican Party. Um, so recently, this year, uh, I believe it was April, the state Republican Party held an election for its new chairperson. And on the first round of balloting, they elected John Bennett, who is a very extreme far-right person. He would have fit very well in the Tea Party and is kind of a, a tea partier. He's very much a MAGA kind of person, if we're going to use that terminology now. Um, when he was in the state house uh, here in Oklahoma, he championed legislation banning Sharia law. He formed an unofficial house committee on basically opposing Islam. He called publicly for the killing of Hillary Clinton. He is, um, just really doesn't care, you know? Uh, and he won. Now, he's not he's not the only voice in the state party, but he is now the dominant voice. And he has done a couple of interesting things that show you how much power a minority can have when they control a party apparatus. So one of the first things he has done is pick a candidate to challenge Senator Lankford, who has been in office 
for I, a very long time. He, he he's a kind of proto conservative Christian, um, true son of Oklahoma, not someone you would think of as middle of the road typically, but he did something that John Bennett cannot abide. He certified the election results in January following the Capitol riots. And for a MAGA person, that means you are no longer a Republican. So uh, John Bennett has solicited someone named Lehmeyer, a really, really conservative pastor from Tulsa, to challenge Lankford. And the power and endorsement of the state party are now behind the challenger the Tea Party MAGA candidate, if we want to say that. Um, now, we don't know how this is going to play out, but without someone um, in the kind of Tea Party vein controlling the state party, someone like Lehmeyer would never, ever dream of candidacy. But when you control the, the organizational machinery, you can do an awful lot to magnify minority and unpopular views. And and that's what you, you know, sort of spend the research talking about is how the Tea Party as an insurgent organization inside the Republican Party, which doesn't necessarily agree with all of the positions of the broader Republican Party, kind of came in and sort of pushed the GOP in particular directions that were more Tea Party-esque. Um and those those are both policy and procedural. As you noted, the the objection to Langford is about certifying a, a process vote, essentially. Yes. Um, and can you discuss a little bit about how the Tea Party itself has, you know, sort of figured out some of the ways that it's willing to do process to also oppose process? Yeah, it's I mean, it's. It's confusing, but we could think of them as being procedurally radical. Um, and I, I think some of Daniel Schlotzman's recent work uh, builds on this idea, too. So, so some of it is just what they were doing at the state and local level. Primarying your party is not usually a good way to win elections. Like, that's, that's some kamikaze stuff. So they didn't care if they lost a seat. They were trying to prove a point. That's pretty radical as it goes. Um, but if we look a couple levels up, maybe we look at Congress. Uh, I did an analysis of Republicans in the U.S. House during the Tea Party era. And using membership in Tea Party aligned caucuses, I was able to separate Tea Party and non-Tea Party Republican members of the House. And I started to look for differences. Now. We would expect in an age of extreme partisan polarization for all of the Republicans to be pretty united on like most things, especially when they controlled the House because they were Republicans and not Democrats. And that's kind of what you might find if you just looked at their overall roll call voting patterns. Um, but that's not really the whole story. So as you dig into how things happen in the U.S. House and in a lot of legislative bodies, there are different votes that have to occur at different stages of the legislative process. So before anyone ever votes on a bill, the, the kind of thing we think of as roll call voting, the final passage vote, you have a procedural vote. 
And the procedural vote is super important because it sets rules for debate, for amendment, for whether people can even speak on the bill and used correctly can really contribute to a bill's success or failure um, as the speaker wants it, essentially. Typically, speakers will let people from their own party wiggle a little bit on the final passage vote. So you might have something where your constituents are, are very specific and they would really oppose you voting with your party on this bill. The speaker will let you do your thing. But you do have to fall in line on the process vote. Amendment votes are kind of similar. They're a little bit in the middle there. And what I found is that the big differences, um, the big places where Tea Partiers were not voting with their party were on these process votes. The places where it really hurt and the places where you could really get under the speaker's skin and we we see some evidence of this in in the turnaround of speakers of, of the House during this Republican-controlled era when the speaker was constantly fighting not just with the minority caucus, but with Tea Partiers within their own caucus. And um, then we yeah. can think of the presidency in 2015 and 16. That nomination process was essentially all of this playing out in a very, very public way on the national scale. And I I mean, obviously you talk about John Boehner and we all have, you know, sort of those of us who pay attention to this kind of stuff. John Boehner was obviously the head on the platter um, <laughs> that <clears throat> when he's just like, I, I'm, I'm done with these people. Um, and, and he just didn't have time to try to manage them. Basically, he, yeah. he just gave up because they refused to work with him in this kind of Madisonian way. Um, mm -hmm. And so in in sort of comparing some of what was going on inside the House to what was going on in the campaign trail in the same sort of time period as well, um, where you had, you know, Boehner replaced by Paul Ryan um, and and so forth. What what? I mean, a lot of people talked about it as a civil war inside the, the, the Republican Party. Would you characterize it as that? It, it has some aspects like I, I can see I can see why people would say that. I, I mean, the Tea Party, as I as I mentioned, didn't care what happened. They didn't care if their party lost um, to an extent. But the civil war or the conflict, I think, was less in the end of a, of a civil war and more of a, um, could think of it as a renegotiation of the coalition it is how I like to think about it. Um, it's not so much that they burned down <laughs> the entire apparatus of, of anyone who they saw as an establishment member of the party. They just made their lives miserable through this war of attrition, through these process attacks, through undermining the kinds of institutions that people who'd been in politics a long time just took for granted, um, creating a lot of instability in the process. And that meant that a lot of the, the establishment Republicans, the Reagan-style Republicans, the people who just weren't on board, they either stepped down because they were fed up a la John Boehner and maybe Paul Ryan. It, we'll never really know what the family reasons were. Um, 
or they were defeated. They were primaried and they lost. So even someone like Eric Cantor, but examples abound. So the, the people who didn't end up doing that, the, the few who remained, uh, they saw the writing on the wall and tacked to the right, kind of changed the way they talked about things, um, tried to claim affinity to the Tea Party. Um, later in, in the Trump era, claimed affinity, made a really big deal of it um, to Trump. So it, less of a civil war and more of a kind of steady process of, of replacing the old guard and changing, renegotiating who was in charge of the party and what kinds of issues they were focusing on. And so we talked about process, but what are the policy differenti- differentiations between the sort of old guard Reagan, not necessarily old guard um you know, from Eisenhower, but old guard <laughs> Reagan to essentially Tea Party moving into the Trump era. Yeah. Um, so with Reagan, we we see the beginning of conservatives dominating the Republican Party, which now just sounds crazy because we've many Americans have had those ideas coupled for them by everything we have ever heard. Um but Reagan really championed that movement, and it was a combination of a lot of things, um, an emphasis on traditional family values and a certain interpretation of Judeo-Christian ethics, um, the Southern strategy, so just low-key racism, a retrenchment of the welfare state with an emphasis on low taxes and um, Austrian economics, in a really, really hawkish foreign policy stance that had a lot to do with the Cold War. Um, All of those things created the contours of conservatism and ended up overlapping, we could even say aligning ideologically for a long time. And then the Tea Party came in and um, they, I mean, it's not that they didn't care about abortion or uh, Christian values. they kind of did. It's just instead of fighting it out on those terrains, they wanted to talk about Islam, and um, they replaced this kind of you know sec- secularism is the threat to Christians in their schools rhetoric with um, Sharia law is going to take over America because there's a as they decided to believe a Muslim in the White House. Um, for economics, they claimed to care about free market economics, but um, they really had no conservative economic positions when it came down to legislation uh, whatsoever. Uh, and everything else they started to champion was very much in the kind of Nixon era law and order um, vein. It was uh, kind of increasing this uh, conflict um with the identity of, of the police versus everyone else, um, emphasizing guns and extreme aversion to immigration. Um, so a text analysis I did of the press releases of members of Congress during that period showed that these kinds of issues, these issues relating to um, feeling like outsiders are threatening your status as the real American the kind of xenophobic, ethnocentric issues were what Republicans who were Tea Partiers were talking about. 
Republicans who were not part of the Tea Party, in contrast, were the ones talking about taxes and economics and strong families, the kind of traditional stuff, national defense. So those those people weren't kicked out of the party. It's just their their pet issues got sent to the back of the queue. And these immigration um, and us versus them types of issues uh, became dominant for Tea Partiers. And with the candidacy and presidency of Donald Trump became mainstream for the Republican Party and uh, a lot of undecided members of the electorate as well. So the, the Tea Party sort of pulled policy areas that had, you know, have always kind of existed um, in the United States, but they pulled those forward inside the Republican Party and to some degree pushing aside some of the more traditional, at least from the Reagan era, um, policies like defense hawkishness and, um, you know, sort of democracy abroad, um, as well as obviously the, the lower taxes and, and family, quote, family values. Um, and, and so then we move into the kind of blue lives matter and, um, and xenophobic or, you know, the anti-immigration that we've seen over the last couple of years in particular. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and how, in this regard, how is the Tea Party or the Tea Party kind of emphasis distinct from what we see in other democracies where we've seen a rise of kind of populism? You talk a bit about that in the book. I, I think there are some some key connections. Um, I wouldn't call it populist so much. It, it, in as much as scholars agree on what populism is at all, it mainly has this idea of a pure people versus a corrupt elite. But that doesn't mean that anyone who says they hate insiders is a populist. Of course, <laughs> we can think of Donald Trump, who is in many ways an insider and not a man of the people, trying to use some of that rhetoric. What we saw more of was this um, ethnocentric, xenophobic rhetoric, where it's not pure people versus corrupt elite. It's us real Americans or, you know, real citizens of whatever country versus the outsiders who don't look like us or don't speak our language. That has been on the rise all over the place. The movements are probably related. People have speculated a lot about what could be connecting them demographic changes, economic changes, political changes, maybe a little bit of everything. Um, but in a lot of countries, those things rise as minor parties. And they they do a lot of their work as, as fringe parties that try to be part of coalition governments. And the fascinating thing in the United States, maybe the scary thing, is that they emerge as factions. And as factions, they can take charge of one of the two vehicles of power and do a lot of damage with it. And then of course, in a, in a globally connected world, it would be hard to imagine that news of, of these happenings in different places doesn't kind of create a a reinforcement mechanism. And you, you did see a little bit of that copycat kind of behavior with other countries, um, either activists or presidents trying to mimic Trump, for example, I think Brazil. Yeah. And, and certainly Trump trying to mimic other 
um, more authoritarian <laughs> leaders like Orban yes. and so forth. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to just move a little bit in a slightly different direction. Um, the research that you did is complex in terms of the kind of different methodologies that you used. Uh, you used data, you did a lot of interviewing, you coded um, sort of information. And you also were able to do this because, as you note in the preface of the book, you have an understanding of um, the kind of conversations and the way that Tea Party members went about their thinking in terms of, you know, sort of coming into the Republican Party and and sort of moving it in a direction that they wanted to move it. Can you talk both about the methodologies that you used, but also your particular capacity in being able to research this topic itself? Yeah. Um, so when I started researching this, I, I was a political theorist and my big connection to American politics, which was one of my minor fields, was through qualitative methodology. And I was particularly fond of some of the anthropological approaches, Geertzian approaches, um, ethnography, kind of, of thick descriptions. Um, and as I was puzzling over how to approach the Tea Party, it struck me that although we all inhabit the same culture as members of the Tea Party, that these different subcultures have really different languages and norms. Um, and a remembering my experiences as kind of part of a related group growing up, you can sense when someone is not part of your group. They use the wrong words in the wrong way. They call you the wrong thing. And it might seem right, but to you it says, uh, you know, in air quotes, like liberal East Coast elite and you shut down. So I, I tried to bring that approach into the Tea Party. Um, going into interviews, for example, more as observation. Um, I, I had a few questions, but I really wanted to let people talk. And as much as possible, I would repeat things back to them using their own terminology anytime I didn't feel like I already had a grip on the right terminology. And then I listened to places where they kind of lost themselves in the conversation where they started going past talking points into what seemed like their true feelings. Um, and then I tried to bring that out in the qualitative work, um, which is really trying to weave together the interviews to tell a story in the way it seemed that the, these participants were experiencing it. The harder part was taking that approach and using it for quantitative research, because in in the world of social sciences, most ethnographers or students of someone like Geertz would not love it if I if they heard me saying that I was inspired in my quantitative work by ethnography. Usually, those two things are are really separate. But I, for better or for worse, thought that any quantitative research on this topic, something that we just didn't have a lot of frameworks for, something that used special populations in terminology, had to be grounded in ethnographic work. So 
in surveys of state delegates, for example. It was ethnographic work that let me understand where and whom to survey, where conversations were taking place and who to contact, and how to phrase questions by using the same terminology to, to frame things a little bit. Um, it helped me understand the way the Tea Party used the internet, which um, a, a lot of the, the work I ended up doing in some of the empirical chapters on their network and their ideology came from Tea Party websites where I used sophisticated quantitative methods or machine learning methods to extract information that was, that was qualitative. The text of their blog posts, the links they sent um, to other websites that belong to other conservative organizations, which I then hand coded qualitatively. So I was attempting to, to combine this emphasis on, on thick description with careful counting is, is maybe a good way to put it. Um, but there were some difficulties. Um, I don't run a single regression in the book, despite the many quantitative things I do. I don't have anything that I attempt to set up in the, the framework of potential outcomes or causal inference. So there are, it, it was, it was kind of sketchy trying to pull it off, um, trying to navigate the worlds of, of qualitative research and quantitative research by really not participating in, in the mainstream of either of them. But I, I feel like a book format lets you do this. It, it, it lets you ask the question, if my theory is true or not false, what would I expect to observe? Because you can't set up an experiment about Tea Party websites, but you can look for evidence of a network or um, their issue positions from those types of things. So each of the chapters attempts to do something like that, to, to take qualitative work as a jumping off point to ask and answer these questions, what would we expect to see? And, and do we see it often through the use of quantitative methods? And I, I thought that the way that you wove all of this together was really useful because it does allow sort of um, somebody to take a look from, you know, 10,000 feet in a certain sense and, and see all the different work that you did in terms of trying to tease out, like understanding what an insurgent faction is in the United States, in this party situation like how did you get to that conclusion you provide so much rich detail um and i i was i i really enjoyed that part of it because it was it was fascinating to read in terms of sort of saying oh okay i see this and i see that and i see this and i see that so uh, well done. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you're right. It's obviously it's a book as opposed to an article um, because you do have a lot of different data that you're working with. Um, and so where is the Tea Party now? Is the Tea Party the party of Donald Trump? Essentially, yes. Um, the Tea Party, in my opinion, and I, I think this is pretty well backed empirically at this point, succeeded. Um, in remaking the party in its own image. And one big way that that became obvious was Trump's nomination and election. And then it, I think, reinforced a lot of what the Tea Party had done. And the, the way that Donald Trump picked up on the kind of rhetoric that the Tea Party had made 
popular in certain circles of the Republican Party helped to push that into the mainstream. So now when we think about who who's a big deal in the party, um, we might be thinking about people who used to be members of the House Freedom Caucus, which was a little bit fringe. So take Jim Jordan from just outside of Columbus, Ohio. He was a pretty extreme fringe, um, just spicy member of Congress, you might say, when he was in the House Freedom Caucus prior to Donald Trump's nomination and election. But with Trump's nomination and election in the ensuing years, Jim Jordan has become one of the people whose name is is floated as a potential Senate candidate for the state of Ohio to replace someone who was more of a, a mainstream Republican. So if we look at the people who kind of rose up with the Tea Party, who were the insurgent outsiders, and then look at where they are now, we see that the party has kind of gutted itself. Um, and, and now we are left wondering what happens without Donald Trump at the helm. And, and that's kind of the, I, I think, the interesting question right now and, and what I'm working on with some other projects, this, this kind of MAGA phenomenon. Um, because you, you now see the MAGA movement being the thing we talk about instead of the Tea Party. No one really says they're a part of the Tea Party anymore. And the two things are not completely overlapping. Um, MAGA became a social movement that kind of sustained, starting with Trump's campaign trail speeches um, to this day. And it maybe brings in a lot of the, the same things the Tea Party cared about, but it's not necessarily trying to take over the party. And I think part of that is, is because it's aligned with a faction the Tea Party that, that really already has taken over the party. And that might explain some of MAGA's enduring power. But then you have the other side of it, which is what's the role of, of elites um, in shaping the future of the Republican Party. And we are now seeing some, some interesting ways that this plays out. So Donald Trump uh, recently gave a speech in Alabama um, at a rally where talked about being vaccinated and encouraged people to become vaccinated. And he was jeered and booed by his former supporters, by the MAGA base, who then jeered and booed Mo Brooks when he said, maybe we should stop saying, just stop focusing on the 2020 election and move on. Um, there have been some other instances of this as well. Think about how Donald Trump initially had made these more humanitarian focused statements about Afghanistan and dialed them back after opposition from MAGA. So now I think a lot of Republican leaders or people who are trying to shape opinion um, are finding that the tail is, is wagging the dog, that the the movement that they incited and the kinds of of rhetoric that they invited and amplified have a force of their own. And, and it's really unclear where we go from here. Is that what you're working on now, sort of following the the sort of MAGA developments and and how this is playing out within the GOP? Yes, I have kind of two separate streams of projects right now. 
And one of them uh, is just looking at this idea of factions in a lot of different settings or trying to, um, in a more rigorous, empirical way in the causal inference framework, like test the idea that places that had primary challenges from Tea Partiers and a lot of Tea Party activism um, became more conservative on these different metrics. But the the other stream and the the next book project is something I'm working on with Chris Parker um, at the University of Washington. And it's building on a survey that we did in December um, and January of this this past December and January of of MAGA supporters, and we were able to find a way using Facebook of all things to identify people who. Uh, identified with MAGA uh, and survey them and see what their views were, which has then led us in some interesting directions because we were able to return to some of those same people immediately after the Capitol riots to see what changed. Um, what we found is definitely enough for a book. So we are, we are trying to, or at least we, our stated goal is trying to help people understand the, the motivations and contours of the movement that is now carrying on Trump's legacy and um, in some ways reshaping what that legacy is. So we were looking at it from two directions. And, and one of them is the, the beliefs and motivations of the, the individuals in the movement themselves. And the other direction is how that movement is working with a party institution, which is a kind of a fun um, and emerging field of work in social movements. Uh, Sydney Tarot has a recent interesting book on it as well. So we are looking at it from those two directions, using these original data um, and a couple of other sources to try to understand MAGA in here, it's it's less from the party perspective and more from the political identity, behavior, and the psychology of social movements perspective. Well, I hope you and Chris will come on the New Books Network and talk to me about the book when it comes out. We will definitely do that. <laughs> that would be delightful to continue the conversation, essentially. Um, yeah. Today, I've been joined by Rachel Blum, who is the author of how the Tea Party Captured the GOP, Insurgent Factions in American Politics, published by University of Chicago Press in 2020. I assume one can purchase this book at the University of Chicago Press website um, and other places where you buy books. Is that correct, Rachel? That is. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about the Tea Party. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Yes, thank you.